Uh, we, we do record these so that if uh, you're away or you are travelling, uh, you, you miss a week or you're helping with uh, the children's program or the creche, you can catch up, just go to the website, you can actually subscribe to the podcast of these Salt Talks each week. But before we get into it, I, I just need to make two announcements, uh, two things. Uh, they're, they're pretty significant too, so i just uh, like to share them with you. Uh, the, the first relates to being contacted by the Sydney Morning Herald uh, in the last 24 hours. Uh, some of you will know that my uh, job, as well as being pastor here, is being National Director of the Network of Churches. And I guess somebody, uh, knowing that we're up here in the Port Macquarie region and seeing all the fires and so on, wanted uh, a perspective on that. And so the question uh, that uh, someone called Greg Corney uh, asked me was, is God in control of the fires that are seemingly burning out of control? And it's a bit of a poison question, isn't it? Um, Uh, To which I I needed to answer yes, I believe that God's in control of all things. And so I'm anticipating that tomorrow morning there'll be uh, an article, if it's not online already, about hate speech from the churches, that God is vindictive, uh, that he's caused these horrific bushfires. So that's the first announcement. (laughs) The second announcement is... There is no one called Greg Corney who works for the Sydney Morning Herald and I made all that up. (laughs) But did you feel something of the tension? Because I did. I did as I spoke and and if you are visiting with us today, I don't normally start with a lie, all right? I want you to keep your Bibles open so that you know that what we're talking about is actually the truth, but it's a very hard question. Uh, it's something that we ought to feel the weight of because the Bible tells us that he's a big God, that he's a loving God, that he's in control of all things. So what happens when things get out of control? What do we make of the bushfires? What do we make of the destruction of property? What do we make of the loss of life? And we thank God there hasn't been much. Where does this sit with our understanding of God and who we are and what God's doing in this world and what his plans are. They're big questions and I'm very grateful I haven't yet had that question uh, from the media. But these are the sort of things that we ought to have some answers to. And so I want to explore it with us today. I don't think that uh, we're likely to cover every aspect of this. And really, it's just the situation, the fires, that's led me to introduce Uh, this particular talk on Genesis 3 in this way. But for some people, the mess that our world is in is outright a barrier to belief. They they cannot, they will not, they won't believe in a God who allows things like this to happen in the world. But on the other hand, there is actually something that's very easy, I think, to get traction with in this. Because the Bible also talks about the mess that we make of the world that we live in. The Bible talks about our sin. It talks about the harm that we cause each other. It talks about the abuse of our environment. The the Bible actually speaks of the human condition and not that everything we see around about us is easily attributed to human behaviour, but 
I'm sure that if we were to unpack a whole bunch of things, we would find answers in the Bible. And so today we're going to be looking at some pretty big themes, an introduction from Genesis 3, on the themes of what we call sin. Interesting, by the way, if you've read ahead on Genesis 3 and know that this is going to be a talk about sin, you might be wondering why this would be a talk about sin when the word doesn't even occur in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Just a little heads up there, doing a word search won't always help you to understand what's uh, being spoken about. If you were to search the word Trinity in the Bible, you wouldn't find it. Does that mean there is no Trinity? No, it means that it's a word to help us understand God. But you will find sin in the Bible. You won't find the word in this chapter, but you'll find the origin of where it comes from. So let's have a look then and uh, a quick recap Uh, First of all, the world before sin. And the world before sin is the world of the Garden of Eden. Uh, We've seen glimpses of it. Uh, In chapter 2, you get a picture of the world in harmony. Uh, You've got all of the created order working the way that it should. You've got the man and his new woman, uh, Adam and Eve. They are in harmony with each other. They're in harmony with God. The creation is functioning as God intended. Uh, They are enjoying the garden that God has given them. And at the end of it, they're naked and they're enjoying each other. I mean, it's a pretty happy place in Genesis chapter 2. That's what we have. And you get a picture, and I'd like you to come with me to uh, verse 16. You get a picture of the extraordinary freedom that God has given to the people. Uh, So in 16, Genesis 2, verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now it goes on, but let's just pause with verse 16 for a minute. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. Now I, I think we ought to take note of that word any. Right? It's big. It's a smorgasbord. It's luscious. There's freedom. God is generous. He's lavishing uh, everything upon the man in the garden. And the picture that we've got there is one of God's bounty. I was going to show you a video at this point in the talk, but I didn't get my act together. Uh, It it was uh, Fiona and I in a resort, we've only ever been to one resort, two years ago in Thailand, where we got this lovely holiday at, I think the place was the Marriott Resort at Kaolack, just for a week. And they had the most extraordinary smorgasbord you could ever remember. And I wanted to make the children feel a little jealous. So I got out my phone and I started at one end of the smorgasbord and I walked slowly, photographing every single type of food. Uh, and there was about a dozen different types of food. I'm, I'm not talking about items of food. I'm talking about different categories of food. So over here is your particular uh, Thai curries. And over here might be some other kind of fresh. And and here there's some kind of meat dishes. And here there's something else. And I scrolled along for 1 minute 30 seconds without doubling up on any item of food and didn't get to the end. Now, it's that kind of picture. Now, read the second half of the verse, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. God gives extraordinary freedom, but for one tree. And it's like, okay, I'm filming for the 90 seconds 
all of these things, except there's this one beautiful dish. It looks very appealing. It's a dessert and it's colourful and it's dripping with things that just look like they're a delight to the palate. And it's right there in the centre of all of those tables at that resort in Kowlak. Thing is, though, it's surrounded by signs. It doesn't simply say this contains no gluten or no dairy or or no taste. It it says that this is actually not to be eaten. Um, And it's in every language you can imagine. And it's large. And there's actually a wall around it to make it hard to get to. And for those who can't read, it's got a a picture of of that poison symbol. And for those who can read German, it says Achtung. Um, Everything about this is telling you not to go there. Now, you and I at that point are thinking, I wonder what that tastes like. I wonder why that one is so good. Well... God creates a world in harmony with incredible freedom. There is one restriction. And I want you to pause and consider this for a minute. But the fact that God is able to say to people that you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but not to eat from this particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When you eat of it, you will certainly die. God is treating the man as one who has moral responsibility. He's he's treating him as a person who can make choice, who's able to decide and has responsibility to decide. He's been created by God. Uh, He's been given all of this freedom from God. And God says, there's one thing that I don't want you to do. And I don't want you to do it because it's dangerous and it'll kill you. You will die. Now, he has a choice at that point. We need to see that the choice is there. That God created people with choice. And of course, at that point, it's just the man, but the woman enters into the relationship. She's brought into the picture in Genesis 2. And when we come into chapter 3, they are both there. They're in that garden. There is harmony, but they have moral capability. They are decision-making beings. They've been given choice. And what happens? Well, let's recap. Because what we see when we look closely at Genesis 3, I think, is the anatomy of what sin looks like. And I want to work through it uh, with you. In verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And then when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I just want to unpack some of the things that we see there. First of all, you have a creature, the serpent, who is extraordinarily crafty. But the thing that I want to draw your attention to is that this is not a god. This is not another divine being. There are some religions in the world that talk about a a pantheon, a multiplicity of gods, some being evil, some being good. This is a creature. But this creature is crafty. This creature is deceptive. 
And the creature does what? If you look closely at verse 1, the creature challenges the honesty, the integrity, the reliability of God and his faithfulness. Did God really say? And I think that's at the heart of the deception. Did God really say? And then it gets a little deeper. Um, You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. Not only did God really say, but second step, God knows what he said is not true. So there's there's a seductive, cunning crafty deception going on to to challenge whether God really said that. And if he did say it, he's clearly lying. Why would he be lying? Well, verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of it, um, your, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Is that God's motive? See, this creature, this serpent, challenges whether God said challenges whether God is reliable, challenges the motives of God in keeping this from them. God had a reason for saying, you must not eat from this or you will die. Now, look at the response of the woman. Um, She says, uh, verse 6, sorry, before she says, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Notice there, it's, Whatever this fruit is, right, and we are never told in the whole of the Bible that it's an apple. There's nothing wrong with apples, right? Go for apples. Um, This wasn't uh, an apple, or if it was an apple, it was an apple with a specific purpose, all right? Um, There's nothing wrong with apples. 1 Timothy chapter 4, no food is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. But it is desirable. Very desirable. You see it there, good for food. Right? There's, there's something about this. It's good, to, it, it's good nourishment, pleasing to the eye. It's aesthetically beautiful. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. See, God said to them, it's true, back in chapter 2, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. He tells them that this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The the devil seduces the woman. Well, actually, I said it's the devil here. We're just told at this point it's the serpent. But I think the rest of Scripture makes that clear. Um, The serpent deceives the woman into mistrusting God and thinking that she'll be wiser, she'll be better off, she'll be satisfied, she will have the delight of her eyes, she will get what she needs if she disobeys God. Because after all, God didn't have her best intentions at heart, did he? And so she takes some and then she gives it to her husband, who's a complete wimp, who rather than responding and saying to her, no, hang on, I heard it directly from God not to take this, he just bows and weakly eats of the same fruit. Interesting, when you go through the rest of Scripture, um, it's described as the sin of Adam. Not the sin of Eve. The, the, it's described as the deception of Eve. That's not saying women are more gullible. It's just making an historical point. The woman was deceived. But the guy, Adam, outright, as a complete wimp, just disobeys God. That, that's the picture that you've got. Now, we see a few things, I think, about the anatomy of sin. 
It's delicious. See, why is it that we succumb to temptation? Why is it that we do what we know we shouldn't do? Why is it that we don't trust God at times and seek to secure our own ends? Why is it that we think we'd be better off if we do it my way rather than God's way? Why is it that we ignore God or we fail to trust God? It's because we've been seduced into thinking that we can do a better job ourselves, that we'd be better off if we disregard what God said, that there's something enticing about this, this lifestyle or, or these possessions or these activities or, or this morality or whatever it might be. We think that we'd be better without God and that is the anatomy of sin. That's where it started. That's what it was like. And what is the result of this? Well, look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. How different is this to verse 25, the end of chapter 2. Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Now there's a lot more to unpack here about the outworking of sin. But fundamentally sin has to do with not trusting God and taking the place of God, saying, no, I'm not going to do things God's way. Put it in the Australian, bugger off, God. I'll do it my way without you. Now, I think it's important that we understand sin only makes sense in relationship to God. See, at its very heart, sin is replacing what God says with what we want to think, what we want to say, what we want to do. Sin isn't just doing naughty things. Sin isn't just doing um, salacious kind of sexually immoral things. It's interesting, there was, a, there was a, an adult strip club or something in Canberra, and Canberra has heaps of these things, that was called Sensations. Uh, there was a, an adult shop called the Adam and Eve Adult Store with an apple with a bite out of it. It was, it was salacious, it was seductive, it was sexy, it was appealing, it was, it was seeking to bring people in, to entice people into something that must be good, that must be attractive, when in fact God knows that it brings disaster, that it undermines our humanity, that it destroys relationships between people, that it, that it actually cuts us off from him. So that's the anatomy of sin. It's, it's not, if it was so blatantly disgusting, right? If, if, if the dish that was in the middle of that massive smorgasbord there in Cowlack was actually um, boiled cabbage, or if it was tripe that hadn't been dressed up, but boiled tripe and boiled cabbage, who'd go for it? But it's not. It's, it's tantalising. That's what sin is like. Well, friends, there's massive implications and, and results of sin. Let's just work through these fairly quickly. We see that the, the, the man and the woman are, are now ashamed of their nakedness. Uh, verse 7. Uh, come down to verse 30, uh, 22. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's a loss of innocence here. Um, and I want to pick up on what does it mean when God says that the man has now become like one of us knowing good and evil. 
Because isn't that what, what the serpent said would happen? What does it mean to become like one of us knowing good and evil? Well, well, let's unpack that for a minute. It couldn't mean that they had no moral sense beforehand. Couldn't mean that because God's actually saying, you're free to do this, but you're not free to do this. Um, he's, he's not teasing people. He's treating us as moral decision-making beings. It can't mean knowing good and evil being to experience good and evil. Because God says he's now become like one of us. Does that mean God is experiencing evil? No. I take it that the distinct thing about God is that he determines what is good and what is evil. God sets the boundaries. And now the, the, the man and the woman, they've started to set their own, their own boundaries. There's an anarchy here when it comes to God. I'll do it my way, God. I'll tell you what's right and what's wrong. I'll tell you what's moral and what's immoral. That's if I bother talking to you. You see, the, the human spirit now of independence against God doesn't like to be told. Certainly not by some being in the sky. We, we, we pride ourselves in, in, the, in our humanity of of our independence and our resilience, our autonomy and our, our moral superiority. We don't need a God getting in the way of our dreams and our plans and our aspirations and desires. I think that's what it means that the man and the woman have now become like one of us. They've become God. I remember one time in Canberra, I was, I was driving along and I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a car I'll never forget this one. It said, I used to be an atheist. And then underneath it said, until I realised that I was God. I think there you've got sin. I think, or, you know, I don't think you buy that one at Kurong, but maybe you could have bought this one. What's at the heart of sin? And of course, the I in sin is highlighted. It's, it's me. It's all about me, not God. Some people do that very aggressively. I'll tell you a nerdy example of this. I was at student enrolments at the Australian National University many years ago, and this guy was really angry with Christians. He came up and he started abusing me and other people at the table. We were just inviting people to check out Christianity while they were on campus. He said, you know what I do when I'm at my computer? I type in God, G-O-D, with as big a font as will fit on the screen. And then I hit delete. I thought, wow, that's impressive. But it's not that easy to get rid of God. Sometimes we do it aggressively. Sometimes it's just through our, I don't need God. I'm just a really good person. But it's still sin. There's blame that comes in. You might have picked this up as um, Brigitte was reading. Um, verse 12, the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault, it's hers. And the woman says then, um, What is it you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. There's just buck passing now. And isn't that the heart of sin? Not taking responsibility ourselves. 
the relationship breakdown. Now the you know they're covering themselves up. They're ashamed of their nakedness. They're they're hiding from God. Um, verse eight. Then the man and the woman heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, "Where are you?" And he said, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid." You see. The danger of sin is that it destroys relationship. Um, it, it's just really damaging. Uh, I want to do something here. Uh, can I get two volunteers? Um, thanks, Bruce. You're looking at me. Good. And um, Tim, you happy to volunteer? Sure. All right. I want you to come and stand up here at the front together. All right. And I'm just going to ask you some really innocent questions, right? Um, and don't, right in front of me, just here, and um, you might just kind of part and turn around, so you're not facing each other. Okay. And I, I'm going to invite you to, to take a step if you've got to answer yes to any of these questions. Um, have you ever told a lie? Well, I knew that if you didn't move, you were going to have to move, because then you wouldn't. <laughs> um, have you ever, ever envied somebody else? Ever did anything when you were younger to dishonour your mother or father? Um, ever looked lustfully on another woman? Um, you can see what happens, can't you? I'm not going to embarrass them any further. But see what happens to their relationship? And I, I didn't want to say, you know, in this whole relationship there's a third person and I didn't want to be God, right? Because I just need to walk away as well. That's just the nature of what we do. Sit down, guys. You're fantastic. Give them a clap. Yeah. See, relationship breakdown. God brings his curse upon the world. Look at verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And then he puts enmity between the man and the woman, between her offspring and, sorry, between the man and the woman and the serpent. And her offspring and his. And we're going to look at that, that verse some people have described as the first gospel verse in the Bible. Uh, and next week we're going to focus on that verse. Uh, the Bible reading will probably be more than one verse, but just a heads up. Um, because there it's about who's going to destroy the serpent's work. And it's going to be the descendant of the woman. And of course... We'll see that at work in Jesus. That's next week. Um, there, there's curse on their relationship uh, between the man and the woman. The, the, uh, the desire being for your husband, he will rule over you. That's not they are naked and feel no shame. Uh, there's pain now in childbearing. Uh, farming is hard work. Gee, we've seen that recently. Um, work itself is going to be tough. And at the very heart of it, people are going to die. People are going to return to dust. Um, look, look at the picture there in verse 22. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, God said not to eat from that tree or you will die. The serpent said, no, you won't surely die. 
And I'd imagine that Adam and Eve were probably tempted to think, well, maybe the servant was right. I'm still breathing. I'm still walking. I'm still talking. I'm still... Well, no, life's not as fun as it used to be. Work's getting harder. Marriage is getting more difficult. And every child that Eve has gets harder and harder. And, and there's all sorts of struggle and difficulty in life. But hey, I'm still here. I'm still breathing. But there's more to death than death. The Bible goes on to talk about death cutting us off from God, cutting us off from the source of spiritual life and not just life itself. Well, there's a pretty ugly picture. Um, But one of the things that I've noticed is that when you get that ugly picture in your mind, it's not that different to the world that we live in now. Um, Have a think about the news. We don't have good news, we we have news. And the news is bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, news, weather, which is now bad news, followed by a good news story about a panda born in captivity somewhere in a zoo. That's the news. There's a formula. You know it. You don't get news. You just get the formula. And it's just atrocity. It's people killing each other. It's the world going haywire. It's our leaders and their corruption. It's the abuse of people. It's, uh, it's the, the rich ripping off the poor. It is a mess. And the doctrine of human sinfulness, I think, is the most verifiable doctrine. It's just so clearly true. We don't have to teach one another to turn our backs upon God. The Bible goes on to say we're actually born into it now. It's what we call original sin, although that's another term you don't get in the Bible. But you do get this notion of what Adam does affecting us all. So I want to go to the New Testament um, because I think it's really important that you get some good news tonight. I once had this, um, this horrible experience of hearing about what I'd done a year or so later. I, I gave two talks uh, at uh, a church in Canberra and this, uh, these young people brought a friend along and the two talks were, the first one was talking about sin and judgment, so that's tonight's topic, and the next topic was God's love and forgiveness. And she was so horrified after the first talk that she didn't come back until over a year later. And then I thought, no, if it's a talk on sin and judgment, you've got to hear some good news. So if you only come tonight, you know that this is not all bad. There's something good. Um, First of all, let's look at the the, uh, picture here of what the rest of the Bible does with this. So in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, I'm not going to say a lot about this, but I want you to see that there's a connection. Romans 5 verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, that's Adam, and death came about through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Now that's that's an incredible verse. There's so much in that, but I think there's two things to see. One is that we now live in a world where sin is part of our DNA to to use a metaphor. It's, we're, we're born into that. We're descendants of Adam. Adam turned his back upon God and because he turned his back upon God, we're all in Adam now. But we're also responsible. 
Because it says justice sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. So we can't just say, oh, it's all Adam's fault. You know, I, I wouldn't have made Adam's mistake because we've repeated Adam's mistake so many times. So we all stand guilty before God. We're all deserving of God's judgment and that's the world that we live in. But come back with me to Romans 5 verse 8, only four verses before. This is the verse that led to me becoming a Christian. So I love this verse. If I had a personalised number plate, it would say ROM 5.8. Romans 5.8, this is it. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you, you don't overcome the problem of sin by defining it away. There, there's been a massive attempt, I think, in psychology to do that. There's a psychologist around, I think it was back in the 50s and 60s, called Carl Menninger, um, who wrote a whole book on why we don't need sin anymore. We've got other categories for understanding life in the world. And modern humanities, that's, that's the position it's going to hold. It doesn't believe in God, so why is it going to believe in sin? Sin's a stupid idea. No, sin explains the human condition better than any psychology, better than any sociology, better than any anthropology. Sin explains the human condition. We've been made by God, we turn our backs upon God. But God hasn't given up on us. You know, one of the good things about being cast out of the garden and and being cut off from the tree of life, yes, it's God's judgment, but there's a mercy about that as well. Because if God had left people forever living in a world where there's now shame and hurt and pain, it would be a disaster. And there's a mercy about being cut off from the tree of life. There's a mercy about God bringing about death. But it's only a mercy that we can understand because God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, while you and I turn our back upon God, while we've rejected God, God takes the initiative. He takes the initiative and sends Jesus Christ to die for us. How does he die for us? Well, he takes the price for our sin. All the hostility that I've I've presented to God, all of my smug, proud goodness, all of my angry rejection of God, wherever you lie on that spectrum, God takes it all, he puts it on Jesus, and Jesus dies and pays the price for it. In fact, I've given you another reference there, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. Let me just read this to you because it just shows how graphic this really is. God made him, that is Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Just let that sink in for a second. God made him who had no sin. That's Jesus. Perfect. Perfect relationship with God, never rejected God, always lived wonderfully with God, loved people, cared for people, demonstrated what true humanity is all about. Here's God in the flesh. God made him 
who had no sin to be sin for us. Now, you can't let that one just slide off. What does it mean for Jesus to become sin for us? It, it means to become all the filth of our hostility against God. That, I don't know how you, whether you saw this on the news recently. There was, there was a guy who had um, abused a uh, seven-year-old girl, violently abused a 17-year-old girl. He'd been in jail. He was, he was a, a child sex offender and he, he was out and he abused this, uh, this girl. And there was a man getting an award, a, a heroism award, because he'd he stepped in and he'd stopped this guy and he cop, copped some knife wounds because of this. Um, now... What does it mean for Jesus to be sin for us? It means that Jesus takes upon himself the predatory horror of a man abusing a seven-year-old girl. It's pretty ugly what Jesus takes on. It's people being led to the gas chamber. It's people deliberately lighting fires they know are going to kill people. It's people... Trafficking in human slaves. It's people deliberately destroying gifts and provisions so they don't get to the people who are in need in other countries. It, it's corruption at every level of society. It, it's the ugly betrayal of, of an unfaithful spouse having so-called affairs with various other people. It's, it's people getting rid of elderly relatives because they've become a burden upon them. It's the horrific destruction of millions and millions and millions of fetuses every year. Jesus takes all of that. It's filth. It's, it, it's just horror. And Jesus takes all of that and he pays the price for it. So that God can look upon you and me if we put our trust in Jesus. So that he can demonstrate his love for us. That while we're still sinners, he doesn't wait for us to lift our game. He doesn't wait for us to, you know, complete his self-improvement program. Because we won't and we couldn't. No, he, he reaches out to us while we're still sinners. And die for us. He takes on that sin for us. Friends, we, we need to appreciate that you don't get rid of sin by redefining it. You get rid of sin by dying for it and paying the price. And God has done that himself. That Jesus would rather pay the price for us than live without us. That's extraordinary. If you've not come to the point where you've put your trust in Jesus... Just, just think how liberating that is. In our honest moments, if we, we search the recesses of our, our own hearts and minds, we know how ugly it is. We know that we don't want people watching that movie. And yet Jesus takes it all and cleans it up, pays the price, takes the judgment for us. And that is so good. And if you've not come to the point of... of Trusting in Jesus, let me urge you to do that. And I'd love to talk with you more about that.
Let me take you to another part of the New Testament. Because the implications of what Jesus has done don't just start with becoming a Christian and finish there. They actually continue. And there's this lovely stuff at the beginning of 1 John. I'd, I'd like to finish with, with this. So there's John 1, right? That's the letter, sorry, the gospel. And then there's 1 John, that's the letter. And that's right near the back of the Bible. And there's a lot said about sin. So let, let me read, first of all, from verse 8 of chapter 1. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now that's, he's writing to Christians. So if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. At least you've got that sin. Um, we all sin. We just do. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. So the first thing, because of Jesus, we're called to confess our sin. And uh, the Bible says that, that God wants us to do that because he is more than ready to forgive us. And in Christ, he's forgiven us already. But he calls us to come to him and own up about how we've treated him. Do you need to confess something to God? Be good to take the time. In fact, good to take the time on a regular basis. One of the strengths, I think, of some of the, the church liturgies, you know, the more formal churches where they read set prayers, is that there, there's often prayers of confession on a regular basis. And, and I think that's a good thing for us to remember, even though we don't have a set liturgy up the front. Just to... Just to say, look, it doesn't mean you're in and out of being Christian. But think about it. I've been married to Fiona now for nearly, I don't know, for a long time. Right? (laughs) I think it's 36 years in a couple of weeks. Um, Do I sin against her? Do I do harm to her? Yeah, I do, sadly, too often. Um, It doesn't mean I'm not married. um, But it... It's a good thing for me to confess that to her. And she can remind me, if she's feeling well disposed, of her forgiveness. Um, And so I I try and not simply say, I'm sorry, uh, which can sound a little hollow at times, but to say, will you forgive me for this? Which gives her the opportunity to say, yes, I will. Or let me think about that for a while. So for confession before God, look, look at the next thing. My dear children, he says, verse 1 of chapter 2, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I want to put an image to this one, right? Um, you, You get solicitors, they're like legal people. And they put a case together. Um, You get a barrister and they put on the wig and they argue the case of the solicitor. Um, You get a really high-powered, high-paid barrister called a Queen's Counsel or a QC and they argue the case for a lot of money really well. 
Well, friends, we're going to sin, right? We're going to sin against God. And we will be guilty. So we need a very, very good lawyer. We need someone who can argue that case before God to say that there is no guilt. Now, how can that happen? Because if I tell a lie or if if I'm full of pride and I come before God, then he knows the truth. And he's not going to be won over by some slick-talking silk. But the way Jesus functions as our, if I can say, king's counsel, is that he says, Father, there's nothing owing against David God. There's nothing owing against Marty Jewess. There's nothing owing against Annette Jones. I could, I could go around, and those of you who, are, who I know personally and know to be Christian, there's nothing owing against you. And God says, and why is that? And the king's counsel can take off his wig and take off his gown and take off his shirt and show the holes in his hands and the spear mark in his side. Say, because I've paid it already. There's nothing more to be paid. So we have, we have an advocate. We, we have a king's counsel who can speak on our behalf to God. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world, it says. And then finally, let me come back to verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, with God, and yet walk in the darkness, then we lie and we don't live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You see, we start the Christian life by trusting in the death of Jesus. We, we continue to trust in the death of Jesus every time we sin and we'll enter into heaven itself trusting in the death of Jesus. Praise God for the death of Jesus. <clears throat> Have it, I pray. And I, I've been going a little bit long, but I... Thought we need to take time on this, so we won't have questions, but I'm hanging around if you want to ask questions. Let's pray.